pressing problems is uh, deals with sacrifice and Christ's sacrifice and how that affects us. And I have gone over this and kind of mulled over it over a period of time. And I think I have something which I believe would be helpful for you. It certainly was a helpful way for me to view these things. And it deals with and depends on, and I spoke to you yesterday about how the sacrifices were accomplished. You have to pay very careful attention. Because sacrifice is two-staged. We're talking now not about the incense sacrifice and so forth. We're talking about the animal sacrifices. <clears throat> and one is the slaughter of the animal, the killing of the animal, which, and it's irrelevant whether that is done by the priest, the Levite, or the person offering it, preferably the person offering it. And that is of less importance as regards sacrifice then what is done with the blood? And the particular type of sacrifice and what it's for determines how the blood is to be used. Because blood is life and therefore belongs to God. It is sacred. Hence the great obsession of uh, the Jews to avoid contact with blood in their secular life. <clears throat> And we have a follow-through of that even in our own, uh, and it's a dispute, though a minor one with the West, when it comes to uh, the, an interpretation of the commandments of, or the rule laid down by the Church of Jerusalem in the 15th chapter of Acts. There it is stated that Gentiles are not required uh, to accept the law, except they are, must do four things. They must abstain from food offered to idols. They must abstain from uh, fornication. They must abstain from things strangled. And they must abstain from blood. The word is simply blood. Now, the West has interpreted this to mean blood shed. And indeed, in Psalm 50, it does. It is used that way. However, when looking at the context of the controversy, it becomes very clear this was not the understanding. It referred to the consumption of blood foods. And in fact, the Western Church does not see it that way and has no prohibition against consumption of blood foods, whereas the East does. And we are very concerned that no blood remain in the food. There are extensive prayers in the early Ephologion which are concerning the met to be associated with the sacrifice, that's the word used, of the animal. Not that animal sacrifices were offered, but that the animal had to be killed in the proper way so that there wasn't blood retained in the flesh. And if you've been to Greece, uh, believe me, the food is generally so well done, you can't tell what animal it came from. <laughs> and uh, you will not find in any Orthodox church, in any Orthodox country, blood foods. You go to Poland, you'll have blood sausage, the, the French bulette, the ugly little things. I mean, they're into those. Uh, all over the Western uh, church area, you will find blood foods used. Remember, 
in the past used, had to use just about everything, but the Orthodox scrupulously ob observe that and avoid all blood. It's sacred. That's a little sidetrack. Anyway, the first matter was the shedding, was the slaughter of the animal. In this case, I see this as a division between Christ's sacrifice upon the cross, which is to be identified, in fact, with that slaughter. And <clears throat> that this is also related to our baptism very, very much. It is by that slaughter that the power, by Christ's death, that death was destroyed, and the power of death was destroyed. And when you and I are baptized, we at that time die with Christ and rise again with him. We have, but when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, there to wait until his, then to wait until his enemies should be made a stool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected all things, yet for all, for all time, those who are sanctified. We are sanctified by our baptism we thereby die to the world and are born anew, born again. And this is related to Christ's death upon the cross. However, there is the collection of blood. If you recall in the, uh, in the epistle to the Hebrews, Christ entered, or the Melchizedek, enters into the sanctuary which is on high with his own blood. This is Christ as he now is. Not one event, not one time, but as he is eternally the slain lamb of God. He is the mediator between God and man, not because he is the intercessor. It's not graded intercessionary value. In other words, Jesus gets top billing, the Virgin Mary is secondary, and then you go down the chain. Not at all. It's not a question of intercession. His person intercedes. When the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, he bore on his chest the breastplate inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes that God would be reminded. Our Lord bears his wounds in the heavens before the throne of God. That is the eternal sacrifice. And it is very, very much related to the Eucharist. Well, from the, and this is something we have to realize, that one of the most common ideas in the earliest documents of the church, one of the most uh, kind of proof texts, the testimonia that are found nearly everywhere, is from the epistle of Malachi. For from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles. And in every place there is sacrifice and there is offered to my name a clear oblation. For my name is great among the Gentiles, said the Lord of, said the Lord of hosts. This, found, this text 
and the sacrificial character associated with the Eucharist is found in Justin Martyr, it's found in the Didache, it's found in the Anaphora of St. Mark, it's found in all of the earliest documents. This association of the Eucharist and the Eucharist as fulfilling this commandment. Well then, what is done in the Eucharist? Is a sacrifice offered again? Are we merely reminded of what Christ did? No. What is done in the Eucharist is that that slain Lamb of God comes as the slain Lamb of God into our presence. And we become partakers of him. To, to backtrack and to see his eternal uh, intercession, I will read from Revelation, the book of Revelation 5, 6 through 14. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, the Holy Spirit upon him, abiding upon him. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp with a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals. For thou wast slain and by thy blood didst, some, didst ransom men from from, for God from every tribe and tongue and nation and people and hast made them kings and priests of our God, and, I, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard round the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all therein saying, to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. My brothers, this is what you and I do in the Eucharist. We participate in that same heavenly worship. And this is very important to remember. We are participating, we are engaged in it because the slain lamb of God comes to us as slain. What is the nature of sacrifice? The separation of flesh from blood. Do not, does not Christ come into our midst as separated flesh and blood? He truly does. So in this, he is eternally pleading his sacrifice by his presence, not by praying, but by his very presence. He is a reminder of God, of his people, of those who are in him, and by our worship, he comes into our midst. I'm going to read what put me on to this is a passage from Nicholas Cabasilis and his commentary on the liturgy. And um, I'll read the, the whole thing, this section. Concerning the sacrifice itself, there is a question that deserves to be considered. Since we are not concerned with a mere figurative sacrifice or symbolic shedding of blood, but with a true holocaust and sacrifice, we must ask ourselves what it is that is sacrificed. Is it the bread or the body of Christ? 
or to put it in another way, are the offerings sacrificed before consecration or afterwards? If it is bread which is, sac which is sacrificed, we must ask ourselves how, how such a thing can be. Surely a, the holy mysteries do not consist in assisting at a sacrifice of bread, but rather of the Lamb of God, who by his death has taken away the sins of the world. Yet, on the other hand, it seems impossible that it can be the Lord's body which is sacrificed. For this body can no longer be slain or stricken, since now a stranger of the, of the, to the grace, since now a stranger to the grace and to corruption, it has become immortal. And even if it were not impossible that it should suffer again, there would have to be executioners to perform the crucifixion and all those other elements which are present at that sacrifice. That is, if it were to be a true sacrifice and not a simple representation. How then can this be since Christ, being raised from the, death, from the dead, dieth no more? He has suffered once in time. He has offered once to bear the sins of many. Yet if he is sacrificed at every celebration of the mysteries, he dies daily. Is there an answer to these problems? Yes. The sacrifice is accomplished neither before nor after the consecration of the bread, but at the very moment of consecration itself. It is necessary thus to preserve all the teachings of our faith concerning sacrifice without overlooking any. What are these teachings? In the first place, that this sacrifice is not a mere figure or symbol, but a true sacrifice. Secondly, that it is not the bread which is sacrificed, but the very body of Christ. Thirdly, that the Lamb of God was sacrificed once only for all time. Now, let us see whether the liturgy is a real sacrifice and not just a representation. The sacrificing of a sheep consists in the changing of its state. It is changed from an unsacrificed sheep to a sacrificed one. The same is true here. The bread is changed from an unsacrificed bread into something sacrificed. In other words, it is changed from ordinary unsacrificed bread into the very body of Christ which was truly sacrificed. Through this transformation, the sacrifice is truly accomplished, just as that of the sheep was when it changed from one state to another. For there has been a in the sacrifice a transformation into the not in symbol but in reality, a transformation into the sacrificed body of the Lord. If it were the bread which was which remaining bread was to be sacrificed, it would be the bread which was immolated, and the immolation of the bread would then be a sac the sacrifice. But the immolation, but the transformation, I'm sorry, has been a double one. The bread from being unsacrificed has become a thing sacrificed, and as it has been changed from simple bread into the body of Christ, it follows, therefore, that this immolation, regarded not as that of the bread, but as that of the body of Christ, which is the substance which lies beneath the appearance of bread, it is truly the sacrifice, not of bread, but of the Lamb of God, I might add, the slain Lamb of God, and it is rightly so called. Now it is clear that under these conditions, it is not necessary that there should be numerous oblations of the Lord's body, since the sacrifice consists not in the real and bloody immolation of a lamb, but in the transformation of the bread into the sacrificed lamb. 
It is obvious that the transformation takes place without the bloody immolation. Thus, though that which is changed is many and the transformation takes place many times, yet nothing changes the reality into which it is transformed from being one and the same thing always. A single body and a unique sacrifice of that body, the slain lamb of God. So I don't know, does that help? Questions? Yes, Father. When we uh, do the liturgy, uh, we speak of it as a rational person. No, it doesn't really. We don't do that. Uh, the scriptures, anyway, don't use the word logiki latria in that way. And I will get into that later. But it is uh, by if, if they some of the fathers did use it, but the scriptures don't. Logiki latria would be one which is rational, not irrational, like the pagans. Yeah. Is there anything significant to the fact that he speaks only of the bread being? No, changed. no. no. I, I was struck by that too, but no, no, it's not a matter of that. It's just the way he explains it. It's not a concept that there's a difference or anything of the kind between the body and the blood. It would apply equally well to the blood. And as I said, the slain lamb of God would have to be separated. Because, you know, he sang early records that you didn't put the blood Mm -hmm. That's true, but that is not, that, uh, that's uh, not here because he doesn't in this particular document, excuse me, deal at all with the pre-sanctified. It's exclusively with the divine liturgy that he is concerned. So it would apply equally well to the blood. You know, uh, you've alluded to it, but more specifically, uh, unless I'm incorrect, the, the Jews understood the sacrifice of the animal, that the death was not the point. The death is a byproduct of getting into the blood, the offering of the blood, which is the life. The, the, the life principle for the Jews is in the blood. And so that, that relates to the offering of white and see and how that relates to the, so the offering of Jesus. The, the death is really not the... Full the death life. is... The death accomplishes something. It accomplishes and opens... It destroys the power of death. Incidentally, he was, who were his executioners? They were not his own. They were the Romans who executed him. So he was executed, and by that, he destroyed the power of death. That is one aspect of his sacrifice. And uh, we'll get into how we're incorporated into that, but that relates to our baptism. Okay. And the power of death was destroyed, and the power of sin was destroyed. But the second aspect, and this is especially elaborated in the epistle to the Hebrews, is what is done with the blood, the entering into the tabernacle or into the inner sanctum, which is mentioned in the epistle of Hebrews. This is an eternal phenomenon. It did not happen one time. He was sacrificed, he went to the kingdom of heaven with blood on his hands, and it was all over. He is perpetually referred to and referred to in the book of Revelation several times as, very specifically, the slain lamb of God. The texts which deal with, uh, well, they're also found in Ascension, but with his second coming, speak of him, lo, he comes from Basra in dyed garments. So the idea of, that he is the lamb of God. 
and the sacrifice is, or that aspect of the sacrifice is perpetual and continual. Yes. I have two questions. Uh, first one is uh, the sacrifice of the animal. You didn't say anything about, about how that was done. Did it matter? I mean, uh, not just humane, but is there a procedure that has to be followed? Oh, yes. Yeah, no, no. It was, it was carried out. And as I did mention, mm -hmm, across the throat. It was not to suffer. Yes. That's exactly. The second question is, um, in, uh, in Western Orthodoxy, the Day is an enormous powerful image, and you see a lot. Uh, you don't see the Agnes Day in Byzantine iconography. I don't see it often anyway. Uh, and uh, and um, the Council of Truro. Pardon? Yeah. Council of Truro. I'm asking that question in reference to how you just described what's going on in Well, in the first place, the West got the hymn from the East. It was introduced from, it's taken from the great doxology, is where it's taken from. Now, uh, it was introduced by Pope Sergius, who was a Sicilian, and it is an, an Eastern introduction. There's a nun, another hymn, Venite Popoli, which is, was, is also found in many medieval texts. It's found particularly in uh, the use of Lyon, but in many others, which seems to have been the native Roman chant for the time of the fraction prior to the introduction of this Eastern hymn. Now we use, and the motif of the lamb is definitely, that's what we call it. Okay, now, uh, so that image is used. Now there's only one Eastern source that I know of that actually uses that hymn, O Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. There's only one, and that's a Georgian manuscript from the 12th century, which does give it, used as a refrain on one of the psalms, done at the time of uh, the Kinonikon. So whether it was used more broadly or not, we do not know. Whether it was taken from a specific Eastern source, we do not know. But it is derived from, verbally, from the great doxology. As far as in art, as Father John said, Correctly, the council in Trullo forbade the depiction of Christ as a lamb because what was important was the reality. He, was to be, he did not become incarnate as a lamb. He became incarnate as a man, and therefore it is forbidden by canon law. As you know, the council in Trullo's decisions were, were uh, kind of forced the Pope was forced to accept them, and he did swallow very hard and accept them, kind of with a provision, but there's a great deal. It wasn't aimed at the West, but in fact, I know the West has kind of ignored its provision. Yeah, but that, I don't think, I don't think that was one of them, but there were quite a few others, yeah. Yes. Um, in iconography, um, uh, the, the glorified Christ, I don't remember except for the the image of our Lord on the cross at the high place, and, 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 and I don't remember seeing very often the marks of the crucifixion. And as you described it uh, from the book of Revelation, the lamb that was slain is the image that's there. And that seems to imply that there should be some sign of that in, in iconography. That is, the risen Christ is the lamb that's slain. And in some, yes. But that's a specific experience. No, uh, as far as in iconography, we don't have depictions per se of that. The, the uh, icons that would be of that 
would be related to that would be the Pandocrator, of course, where he's called the Almighty from the Book of Revelation. That's what the word means. Uh, also, uh, perhaps in Christ as the High Priest. But from there on in Ica Eastern iconography is... Yes, in that one, yeah. Oh, you're talking about, yes, that, that's the, yeah, acrotapinosis, the ascension, yeah. The ascension icon is, is very interesting because the ascension icon is, and, and the ascension is associated with the second coming of Christ, very intimately. Yes, and in fact, uh, if you would ever go to Thessaloniki, go to the, uh, to the cathedral, of, uh, the old cathedral, St. Sophia, and you will see in its dome, when I was there, they had structural work going on, and I couldn't see it. But since then, the <coughs> scaffolding has been removed. It did not have a Pandocrator in it. It does have the ascension. And it seems that before the Pandocrator became established as the scene in the dome, the ascension seems to have been one of the most common, if not the most common, scene that would be depicted there, which is kind of very eschatological. It seems that in the, in the medieval debate between Protestants and the Catholics about the nature of, of Christ's sacrifice in the Mass, that, I mean, in my understanding, in the medieval Rome was that Christ was being re-sacrificed at every Mass? No. That was popular. That was popular, yeah. But that wasn't what the... What it was very much what you just described. It was the, it was the, re, the entering into the sacrifice was... But the focus with us is less the actual event of the cross than the heavenly Christ. That is the reason for uh, the emphasis with the Pandocrator and so forth. You will see a difference in psychology. I mean, that's not to be denied. When you look at our crosses, they're not graphic representations of the crucifixion. Some of those, especially when you get into Hispanic art, I mean, it is <laughs> graphic. <laughs> and uh, you will never find that because it is the proclamation of, an, of, the tr of a theological truth. And the kind of image of Christ, which is very much presented in everything surrounding the Eucharist, is really a triumphant kind of imperial image, as a matter of fact, which is, was more common earlier, that imperial image, than the image of Christ dispensing communion to the, to the disciples dressed in kind of uh, first century clothing. So that kind of heavenly worship does pervade the whole thing. I had a question going back to the depiction of the lamb um, in iconography. I've seen icons, I saw one recently, of Christ clearly um, portrayed as a man with a lamb over his shoulders and a cross behind the two of them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's a, a recent kind of device or if that's something that has a, a, a long-standing history of, or if it's even part of what was proscribed by the, by the canon. No, it wouldn't have been part of what was proscribed. I've not seen that. I've seen icons of Christ as the Good Shepherd, yes. Yeah, that's just that. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that. <laughs> well, I was passing the bishop's room the other and saw across from it the Christ the Liberator in uh, blackface and. <laughs> yes. Yes, Anna. Um, 
Can you speak to the iconography of Christ when they show the slain child on the discourse? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a whole series that comes from that. It's very strange how that got going. Uh, it comes, it's based upon a legend that um, it's said that St. Peter, this is historically inaccurate, but that St. Peter of Alexandria saw a vision in which a child was sacrificed or being divided, not sacrificed. It had no Eucharistic associations originally, but a child was being divided. And the documents say this was clearly the, uh, the re reflecting the air, what Arius was doing and creating and dividing Christ. Uh, as a matter of fact, Peter of Alexandria <laughs> died as a martyr before Arius got going. Uh, and it had no original Eucharistic association whatsoever. But it did come to be taken up uh, in the, uh, I think around the 12th century it started. And in the iconography, it was perhaps one of the most common themes. You'll see a little baby lying on the discourse itself. And that becomes very common in manuscript illustrations and in churches. So in that sense, you do have, in a sense, the Agnus Dei depicted as well. Um, and was one of the most common features uh, generally uh, in the altar area. Are there any other questions or observations in regard to sacrifice? Yes, Father. Yeah, this is just a thought kind of hit me. The high priest, uh, <clears throat> the night in which he was betrayed and so forth. It talked about the prophecy of, of, of Christ, uh, better that one would die. Now that was not an atonement statement uh, to his knowledge. My thoughts are, but there, there's some real prophecy that's going on there. I don't think he, think he even knows what he's talking about. Does he? No, he doesn't. That's clear. I mean, the text says that. And it does say that as high priest, he was speaking as prophet. You know. Um, the problem with the whole idea of atonement is you don't find it much in, in Byzantine thought. We approach the God's man's being reconciled to God in the person of Christ from a variety of ways. And what you're talking about is basically during the uh, uh, scholastic period it was defined and so forth. The East never went through that sort of thing. So in many ways, uh, there, there are a variety of things. Uh, a part of what might be under the general heading of atonement is uh, by our entering into Christ through baptism, we have eternal life. We are reconciled to God. We are born again. I mean, all of those things are related to it. But uh, the East doesn't quite confront it or address those, or rather, it doesn't raise those questions just like many of the issues that arose in the scholastic period in regard to uh, how the Eucharist becomes, how the bread and wine becomes Christ's body and blood, were not necessarily questions in the East. And the Eastern Church was very little bothered by it. We accepted quite, honest, quite specifically the words of our Lord. We accepted the fact that the Holy Spirit accomplishes all things, so he changes. The prayers had asked for it. Incidentally, you'll find a great deal of that in the, in the West, too, in Western texts, particularly in St. Augustine, discussion of the Holy Spirit, and in the North African writers, and his uh, actions in the Eucharist. But um, 
it wasn't, it wasn't an, an issue in the same way. In the East, when they denied the Eucharist, they denied everything. I mean, you'd get the boga meals and so forth. Yeah, they denied Eucharist, icons, churches, marriage, <laughs> you know, the, and, you know, the two gods or perhaps the devil promoted quite a bit. So they got, it, was, it was, wasn't confronted, the, the issues, not confronted, the issues were not raised in that way. It was a very different perspective, very, very different perspective. Yes, certainly the patristic uh, text and the liturgy itself and so on show that there was a great interest in the idea of the Eucharist as a sacrifice in the East. Would you agree that the West was far more preoccupied with that um, particular avenue into understanding the Eucharist? Oh, yeah, because I, I don't think... The East always did understand, and as I said, from the very beginning of the church, the, the, the Eucharist was understood to be sacrificial. But it doesn't, uh, this is the only explanation I've ever found in the East of what that meant. To the same extent as it did in Roman Catholicism, especially in years past, where this whole sense of propitiation and offering for people in purgatory and all that stuff is real powerful. Well, the, the idea of the Eucharist, uh, not defining exactly what is the nature of the sacrifice, but that it is effective for the departed, is certainly a very strong idea in the Orthodox world. But, there, of course, there is no idea of purgatory as such. But just on a general observation level, just as the sacrificial nature just doesn't seem to occupy the same no. uh, place in the... No, it doesn't. It, it, and uh, in the West, it did come... Uh, very, very much to predominate. It was not always so, but it did become later a, a much greater obsession with it and zeroing in very, very tightly upon the, the crucifixion, both in terms of iconography and everything else. What did they do? In the Missal, before you began, right after the, the singing of uh, Holy, 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 the first Te uh, or the first T was turned into a cross, and there was an iconographic representation. So that was kissed, and they recited the, the canon, which is extremely sacrificial. The language is uh, um, obsessively sacrificial. Well, even more so the canon, I mean the anaphora, because ours makes very little discussion and really uses thesia, sacrifice, very, very seldom. There is that sacrificial element, and it pervades the Eucharist, but not in the same way at all. And furthermore, it is not narrowly zeroed in on the moment of crucifixion, which is why I really feel that it's more the eternal sacrifice of Christ, which is pleaded in the heavens. I almost got the feeling that Vasna's statements there almost were answers to questions that were uh, framed and raised from a scholastic or Western perspective. I mean, that maybe had penetrated to the East to a great deal. How exactly is the sacrifice infected? What, what makes, when does it occur? Those were classic scholastic questions. Yeah, earlier on, you didn't have, uh, well, obviously, the, 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 the epiclesis does ask that it be changed. And uh, you can say uh, that anadixis is used in, in St. Basil to show, but actually to show means to make. It doesn't mean to, you know, put something on exhibition doesn't mean that at all. Uh, and it can be used in terms of to make, and often is. And it's also used and quoted at the end of the anaphora. That word is used three times in the anaphora. At the end of the anaphora, it's used to make us, to show us to be the uh, children 
of, uh, of election. So if the word is not used in terms, it, it, doesn't, it isn't just to demonstrate or to represent. It, it really does have the sense of to make. So, huh? There's an older kind of archaic connotation to the verb in English to show. You might show, you might say, let us show ourselves victorious. We're not victorious yet, you have to win. So yeah, I agree, that's a very good point. So. Um, there was always the understanding, and we're asking that the Holy Spirit change them. So there is the understanding clearly that that's there. And that can even be found in the West, uh, most specifically uh, Optatus, who was a 5th cent century uh, writer in uh, North Africa, goes in and talks about there was obviously in the Eucharist that he was using, there was an epiclesis. as you could tell it from the way he was saying it. Um, and St. Saint, Saint, uh, Ambrose, in certain passages, talks about the Holy Spirit changing. But both East and West were not that concerned with pinpointing it occurs here and not there. And as a matter of fact, in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, uh, we have just a minute, because the older text is a little more explicitly almost sacrificial than the one we use today. Uh, in the anaphora. And we give thanks unto thee also for this ministry, which do thou vouchsafe to receive at our hands, even though there's sand beside thee, thousands of archangels. That's the meaning, that's the reading which is found in all the early manuscripts. So there's sacrificial language there. But it doesn't mean that they thought that it occurred there, you know, because there could be sacrificial language elsewhere. So the idea of zeroing in on the moment really does during, come during the scholastic period. I think St. Ambrose is uh, answering, or uh, sorry, that uh, Cabasilis is addressing that. I don't know that he's addressed, I think, more in general terms than, you know, specific. Mm -hmm. Of the, was there, is there an epiclesis? Epiclesis, yes, very much so. So he was aware that he was. Okay. How, you, you made the comment, though, that uh, the, the atonement, the idea of atonement is not, is not as strong in the, in the East as in the West. What do you mean by atonement? Well, that's, I mean, you, you, you're the Far one that made that comment. Well, so, I know that it's so, used. I mean, I, I, would, not sure. I, mean I, how, I don't, I guess I cannot in my mind separate between the whole idea of sacrifice and no atonement. I mean, why, were, why was the blood shed and sprinkled if, I mean, what, what was the purpose, I mean, In those blood, sacrifices, that is what happened. They were sprinkled upon, uh, particularly on the day of atonement, was sprinkled on the place of where had stood the ark. Okay, well that's, in the epistle to the Hebrews, it's represented as entering in with his blood. The idea of sprinkling, you know, everything, like the, the altar and everything, is not really given much. It's the entering into the inner sanctuary with his blood which is given, and which is emphasized. So I think the, the thing is, the, the question of our reconciliation with God, the question of the opening up of salvation, is dealt with in a variety of ways and approaches in the East. I am not really familiar with Western ideas of atonement. And the West did not have to, uh, the East, you know, has its traditions very well developed. But they approach things in a somewhat different way, Father John. Yeah, what we don't have in the East is this concept of Christ. You know, Anselm's work uh, 
His work where he talks about you know the satisfaction theory and then Christ came to die to satisfy the vengeful anger of anger. I don't think that exists in the East at all. That's a very much medieval Western development. That was new in the 12th century. Yeah, it was new in the 12th century. Yeah, that was after the the the, the, the Roman schism was over. Except the shower. No. When you when you get into the third uh, well. 13th and the 12th century, that, that time, there's definitely a change in the West, and it goes its own way and develops, yeah, it, it develops along its own lines. In the earlier period, there were differences between East and West, but they were not that marked. And you could find Western writers that would be saying things that sounded very Byzantine, and vice versa, I might add. And nobody got upset about it. There was a lot of comings and goings and so forth. But about that time, uh, the West aggressively didn't just evolve separately and distinctly. It did so aggressively on all fronts. And uh, it was right after 1204 that for the very first time, the Romans began appointing in the territories they conquered Roman bishops, thereby implying that the resident bishops were not part of the church any longer. Hmm? They threw out our patriarch and put in our wife patriarch. That's when it began to It did between four films. Bloodless worship used to emphasize the uh, eternal characteristic of sacrifice, or uh, and to no to, to contrast it with the offering of bulls and sheep and goats and stuff. That was the reason that it's done. Although I was once told of a priest who uh, was kind of old calendarist, and this is years ago, and he insisted that it was uh, someone came in and his hands were blue, and he said it must be offered as a bloodless sacrifice. <laughs> So he had them lashed so tightly that <laughs> there was no blood in his hands. <laughs> so, uh, no, it was quite straightforward explanation. <laughs> All right, any further questions on, on in regard to the... Yes, Father. It, it just occurred to me that while the West can spend more ink on, on the atonement and, and the moment of sacrifice, uh, that the, the concept of sacrifice permeates the, the Eastern liturgy, but nowhere more graphically, in my mind, than, the, than in the Great Entrance itself. In what way? Well, in the sense that the, that the Great Entrance is a burial service for Christ and the offerings That's one, that, wait a minute, that's one motif, but it's not by any means the only one, nor is it the earliest one. Well, no, but it, How, it certainly carries, that, that motif certainly carries with it the notion of sacrifice. So not really, good. not really. The, and, and the comment, Byzantine commentators are very effusive in, and actually the, the Latin ones were even more so, in identifying what were moments of the liturgy and a kind of as a passion play. But when it comes to the liturgy, when it comes to transformation, when it comes to, uh, of the elements, when, uh, they were very careful at that point. Uh, they, did, they knew that that was the sacrifice itself. Uh, the, uh, these hymns that have uh, been drawn into the whole complex today of the great entrance are not found. They're, not, they're kind of devotional additions. 
And the essential texts, both of the prayers and of the hymn, have nothing to do with that at all. It's very clear that the hymn deals with a preparation for the Eucharistic portion, namely the offering of points to the, uh, the uh, Trisagion, it points to the Anaphora, it points to the reception of communion. It is not pointing to an, to an event which is occurring there. This idea first appears, a burial and so forth, first appears in Theodore Mopsuestia. But the, this, the liturgical tradition that Theodore Mopsuestia represents in Cilicia, is, which is where uh, Mopsuestia is located, is not the same as ours. It's related much more closely to what evolved as the Jacobite tradition. And in that one, you will definitely find sacrificial, atoning sacrificial ideas associated very much with the priest as the one who sacrifices. The, even at certain times in the prayers of uh, the various anaphoras, the priest changes to the first person, I am sacrificing, you know. And the priestly's offering of this and that. When you don't find that language at all in uh, any Byzantine text, and so what happened, that idea began to pervade, but it never entered into the actual text, primary text of the liturgy. It did in, in devotional texts that surrounded it, but those were not uniform in books until very, very recently. So that's a kind of artificial imposition upon something which is very different. Yes, Father? Uh, it's merely my observation, but it's not a very learned one, that Popular piety tends toward Christ as the pathetic victim. And yet the divinical words are, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life. And so he, he really should appear as the active agent rather than the pathetic victim. But popular piety seems to always push this other idea, this mutilated. I, I don't Christ. see that as, as a, a way the, the East sees it on a popular level. Oh, oh, graphically. But liturgically, where you will find the idea, uh, it goes back quite a ways of sacrifice, is really in the proskomide or the, uh, the prothesis. There you do have it, but do remember that the offering of the prothesis, artos tis prothesios, was itself sacrificial. I mean, it wasn't thrown in the fire, it wasn't carried into the Holy of Holies. It was in the holy place, but it was accompanied each of the loaves by incense, which is a sacrificial feature. So it was sacrificial in nature itself and commemorative, which has adhered not only to the prophecies, but to the entire liturgy, that idea that in some sense Christ presents and reminds God, if you will, during the liturgy of us and of our needs and, and those for whom we pray. So there is a certain sacrificial element which is there. And although now it is very common to find in most churches the icon of the nativity there in the um, prothesis, this is not the earliest one, and it depends on only one text, lo, the star came and stood over the place where the young child lied, which is not the most common ancient one at all and it's merely dictated by the shape of the item. Um, I always say it in Greek, and I don't remember it at the moment. 
when I'm in the mood, when I'm in the motions, I can do it. Otherwise, I'm disconnected. It, it, it isn't that. It's the spreading out of the heavens is the motif. But the iconographic representation, which is normally given in the prothesis, is that of the crucifixion, or more commonly, acropatapinosis, which is a generalized, the extreme humility, which is a generalized icon covering various aspects of the passion, not zeroed in on a specific moment. That is the most common icon which is found in there. And whereas the, um, the nativity is associated with the holy table, because the Holy Spirit came down into the womb of the, uh, womb of the Virgin and Christ was born, the Holy Spirit comes down and the bread and wine becomes his Christ, Christ's body and blood. That's a very common, and again, you look at the uh, Syriac writers, and they're, especially St. Uh, uh, Ephraim the Syrian discusses that extensively, extensively, but it's also found in, in, other, uh, in other writers, period. So the, 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 if you will, the consecration is associated with that. Very often it was common to have on the one side uh, even the representations of the baptism Christ on the one side and the Baptist on the other because the Holy Spirit came down and made a beeline right for the table. And, uh, or of the Annunciation, which got on the, holy, on the deacon's doors because it was transferred from up above. And again, the angel, the virgin, zoom. So that was, that was an earlier way. So that there was much more incarnational aspect was associated very strongly with the idea of consecration. Every bit as much, I would say, probably as uh, you know, any sacrificial concept as such. Okay, any others on this particular? Five minutes for? Okay, well, we'll finish up this, and then in this next session, we'll go into uh, the Vasilion Iratevma. But uh, that's why, any last questions in this area? If not, go take a break, and when you come back, we'll continue.